Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Gabriel Kennedy, the author of the forthcoming biography, Chapel Perilous, The Life and Thought Crimes of Robert Anton Wilson, which hits shelves in February 2024 from Strange Attractor MIT Press. The subject of that book, Robert Anton Wilson, wrote 35 books of his own, in over 1,500 published articles. His more well-known works include the Illuminatus Trilogy, co-authored with Robert Shea, the Schrodinger's Cat Trilogy, the Cosmic Trigger Trilogy, Prometheus Rising, Quantum Psychology, and the New Inquisition. Wilson has been described as futurist, author, lecturer, stand-up comic, guerrilla ontologist, psychedelic magician, outer head of the Illuminati, quantum psychologist, Taoist sage, Discordian pope, Struthian politician, and was perhaps all and none of the above. Before writing Chapel Perilous, Gabriel spent years as the hip-hop artist known as Prop Anon, producing music, videos, and street art under that name. Later, Prop started a doom metal band called Hail Eris, releasing the eponymous album Hail Eris, which can be found on Bandcamp, along with all the other Prop Anon music. As a writer, Gabriel's work's been published by boingboing.net, Mondo2000.com, and his own websites, Propanon.com and ChapelPerilous.us. He's also got a Medium page, Propanon.medium.com, and he also publishes at Bonus Tracks, the official blog of Spotlight On. So now, enjoy my talk with Gabriel Kennedy. I'm so excited to meet you and speak with you for a variety of reasons. I guess a way of jumping in, it's always exciting to meet a Bob Wilson, not only enthusiast, but now with you, someone who has really immersed themselves in his work and in his life and times. There's so much I want to talk to in that regard. But mm -hmm. first, just as a service to me and, and to our listeners, can we start with a little bit about who you are and where you're from and how and why you? <laughs> sure. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah. And I totally get it too, man. It was always like over the years, like finding other like Bob heads was always like a nice discovery, you know. Robert Anton Wilson was like relegated to the underground for forever, for so long. I get it. Yeah, bro. It's nice, man. It's good salute, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about you. Where are you from? What's what's your origin story? And 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 what brought you into the world of sort of music, art, and what I would call maybe like freak philosophy. <laughs> sure thing. I was born in uh, Long Island, New York, and was raised by two Irish immigrants who came to New York and opened bars. So I was raised in a bar family. I have many memories of just being sat at the end of the bar while my parents were working and then just observing people in that setting. And I was always around stories in a way from listening to people speak at the bar as like a young kid <laughs> was, was educational, you know, then just went through high school, which I was a fairly good high school education. My senior year, I discovered Robert Anton Wilson through a friend of mine 
in math class, he handed me a copy of Illuminatus Trilogy. I was completely intrigued by the book. Uh, I read it that summer. It was really a formational sort of intellectual book for me because I was just hopping into college. And now everything that was said in Illuminatus Trilogy was, it was like my job to fact check it. I just gave myself that sort of job to do. But I think Robert Anton Wilson encourages people to to fact check his stuff. And that's part of the fun journey of reading his work is that the way that he writes is very exploratory and inviting and inclusive. It's so inspirational to completely motivate you to put yourself on track for an education that Wilson was tapped into, right? The sort of autodidactic, do-it-yourself, heavy scholastic sort of education that I, I think that he encourages, again, in his work. I was like a bobhead from a fairly young age then. Obviously, we're all into many different things. So that was just one guy that I loved reading, right? I would read Henry Miller as well. I got super into to his work and very inspiring. And sort of it was Henry Miller who really showed me like how exciting writing could be. Because I was raised on TV. I didn't really read a lot of books in, in younger age or whatever. MTV was amazing, right? Um, music videos were so cool. It, it seems like something that we just take for granted in a way that music is such an everyday part of our lives. But there was a time when humans couldn't tap in and listen to music so easily and so accessibly. But yeah, so I loved music. Being at the bar, we had a jukebox, right? Like every bar. I would hear so many songs on that jukebox. And then I started getting into my own interests and stuff, which pretty much was like hip hop and like heavy metal and punk rock and stuff like that just became like so many people, just like a fan of the counterculture of the American counterculture rooted in the 1960s ideals, if you will, and just followed that, that arc through the stages from the 60s, through punk rock, through new wave, through post-punk, hip-hop, metal, techno, went to a ton of raves as a kid. And all these things coalesced around the year 2000 in a way. That seemed like there was like a, a moment in time where like all the doors and the windows were open and that like anything was possible. And then sadly, <laughs> something crazy did happen in 2001, which shut so many doors and windows and just seemed to completely change everything, it seemed like. And I think we're still living through that, that 9-11 effect, if you will. Yeah, that's a really brief rundown with some thoughts. But yeah, I was a huge Wilson fan since I was about 18 and just kept at it, kept reading his stuff. I mean, he pretty much became my, the guy that I would bounce everything off. You know, people have their favorite sort of thinkers that they're always having a conversation with in their minds perhaps. And it's like, oh yeah, I just came across this interesting factoid. What did Robert Anton Wilson write about this or think about this? And used him as an intellectual mentor and teacher and um, read all his books repeatedly, was super fan and whatnot, and then wanted to uh, just write a book about him. And the book became a biography because at first I was seeking to write about his ideas. But when I was doing that, it dawned on me that, oh, wow, like I need to really contextualize what he was writing. The things he was writing about in Cosmic Trigger are different than what he's writing about in The Thing That Ate the Constitution many years later. So I need to contextualize 
where he was in, in space and time, I should draw up a quick biography. And that quick biography became <laughs> the book. And, um, and it was like my final lesson with a, a teacher of sorts. When someone is into one's ideas, the people who are saying the ideas can seem larger than life, obviously. And so it was like just grounding the man, his ideas into a simple, humble life that he lived. But within all that, there was a lot of exciting and interesting things that were happening that he was engaged in and that was happening around him. And so I think that really makes the book pop, if you will, because the book is called Chapel Perilous, The Life and Thought Crimes of Robert Anton Wilson. So it's an approach of like a micro history, writing about Bob, his ideas, but obviously spending a little bit of time contextualizing what was going on in America and the world and at the time that he was doing all this stuff. So it was the final test or the final lesson. It, it really grounded Wilson for me. It educated me writing the book. When you're writing about a person's whole life and then up to someone's death, obviously we haven't reached that point yet. It, it forced me to contemplate the whole lifespan that we have. And uh, that was super interesting. It was a very humbling experience, but it was also like an eye-opening. And I applied a critical eye to Wilson too. I presented warts and all. It's not a hagiography. It's, it's not a fan praise of this guy's so great. I don't think Wilson would deserve more. You got to put him through the ringer. And I think I did, but I think I, I toasted him more than I roasted him, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's really difficult. And maybe this can be said of most figures, but it, it definitely stands out for me with Wilson that it's impossible to separate him from his time, right? He's such like a post-World War II American figure. You almost could not create one in fiction better. He's such a, not only a reflection, but a summation and a reflection and a arbiter. I don't know. He's just, he's such a, he's such a, a late 20th century figure in my mind. Something that's always struck me about him since I first learned about him. So I came to Wilson in the early nineties when so much of this stuff got in the air, the sort of the late zine pre-internet era Digital communities were first emerging. The small presses were all really strong and vibrant. As a very young man, I owned a bookstore. I carried all the New Falcon stuff, a lot of Crowley books, you know, just that, that whole universe, all those things that came together, technology, freak culture, philosophy, the cyber culture, and Wilson is smack dab in the middle of all that, conspiracy theories, you know, all those things. It's so strange to have that figure rattling around in your brain for 30 some odd years and still have to understand how under underfeeded he is. People don't really know about him. And he's such a pivotal figure. So it's something that makes your book very exciting. And the warts and all approach, I think, is something that it is merited because it's, it would be very easy to put him on a pedestal and idealize him. But I don't think it detracts from him to place him in his time when whether that's some of the attitudes or beliefs or whatever, you know, I don't I don't think it I don't think it diminishes him. And I, I certainly wouldn't expect that there's like a me too moment or something awful that would knock him down too many pegs. If anything, it would just humanize him a little. Yeah, no, I didn't find many of those. He wasn't that guy, <laughs> you know, it wasn't problematic. <laughs> uh, there's a couple things. I think it's better. I leave it for the book. For uh, people to to read and then digest and whatnot, but I would say the 
kind of most critical take one could have on Wilson would maybe be that living the life that he lived and also with his wife, Arlen, like they were both so extremely artistic and intellectual. They had four kids together. Arlen had two from a previous marriage and then Bob and Arlen had two of their own. Like you said, this was during the 70s where the kids were around the house the most. And as a product of the time, they were the anti-helicopter parents. They moved around a lot when the kids were very young. And so this had an effect on their children, a sort of destabilizing effect. Like moving is one of the more stressful things that people experience. Loss of a job being another one, death of a loved one. But it's a common one that we don't normally realize that it is actually fairly stressful on the body and the mind. And so Wilson quit his job at Playboy in 1971. He got the job in 1966, but he quit the job in 1971 at Playboy a few years before he was eligible to eventually start collecting extra payments or something from Playboy to further provide for his family, right? His kids were young. When he did work at Playboy, the family, the kids had dental care and health care. And when he left, obviously they lost all that stuff. I think that's one area where one could maybe look at Bob and Arlen with a critical eye and be like, oh, maybe you weren't the best of parents. Maybe you were somewhat neglectful. You were so wrapped up in your own thing that you really couldn't totally be there for your kids. Now, at the same time, that's a harsh judgment. And again, I'm not psychoanalyzing Bob in the book. I did not make that. I, I made it a conscious choice not to psychoanalyze Wilson, but these were things that crossed my mind as I was doing the research, right? But one has to temper that with how can you judge another person's life with their family? It's very difficult to do that as an outsider. And I was being very careful not to do that. But what I observed as Bob and Arlen being a reflection of those times where they were extremely hands-off with their kids and speaking with their kids, I could see that still stays with them right? But at the same time, like the times that Bob was around his kids, it's reflected in his book, Cosmic Trigger, volume one. He was far from a jerk. He was like such a nice, doting, loving father who did take great care to provide certain things for his kids. It's just that he was also a full-time writer that needed to spend a lot of time at his desk, cloistered from the world and digging into his own mind to present these jewels for the rest of the world. And I think it just shows like how the path of, a, of an artist is not an easy one, especially if you have a family and you're trying to balance those two things. But it's educational though. I think it's good for people to read because our generation, this new generation is, parents want to be there for their kids. There's, you know, yeah. we're almost going into heavy helicopter parent areas and I don't have any kids. So I don't know what it's like Exactly. But it, it was educational in terms of a human education just to to get this close. It's like I was like a shadow for Wilson. If I felt like I was time traveling, going through his whole life and just like the great kazoo and, and the Flintstones, like I was able to appear and just watch all this stuff as if I was one of those intelligences from the cosmic trigger years that he thought was zoning in on him. Like I was able to do that through writing this biography which again made it so much fun. And it was just super educational, Lawrence. Just, it was so many things, like so many jewels in, in doing this research into Wilson. Is it true that there's no sort of one central place to go? 
I've always understood that he didn't necessarily have the luxury of in real time an, an archivist. And so it's not like you can visit one place and access everything. Like what is what did that mean for your role as a writer and researcher? That's true. That is very true. The closest he had to a sort of central archivist was Michael Horowitz, who was Timothy Leary's main archivist. And Michael Horowitz maintained amazing archives of Leary, which he eventually gave or sold to the New York Public Library. So those Timothy Leary papers are all at the New York Public Library. They've been accessed by Wilson Leary enthusiasts and scholars like Christian Greer. He really did a lot of work with the Tim Leary papers, right? But I say all that because I got a chance to go to the New York Public Library to look at the Wilson files that were in grouped together with the Leary archives because Horowitz, for a period of time, was sort of Bob's archivist as well. But no, not and to say that. And also, he didn't have an archivist, <laughs> you know? So I did have to pursue and, and search out all these different avenues of uh, researchers and, and research to access all these special collections across America to basically find letters that Bob wrote to other people that they kept in their own archives. So I was able to do this with people like Ed Sanders, one of the co-founders of the Fugs, and also the beat poet and writer who Bob was friendly with from like 1962, like just as the Fugs or before the Fugs were, were formed, which was pretty cool. I was able to do the same with Tully Kupferberg, who is the other co-founder of the Fugs. Ed Sanders' archives are in like Yukon Library Special Collections and then Tilly Kupferberg's in an NYU Special Collections. That was a lot of fun. That was an aspect to this book that kept me going, kept the engine turning to stay totally motivated and inspired to just keep going at this, writing this book full speed. And it took many years to get this book together because for exactly one of that being one reason that his archives are decentralized, we shall say. Yeah. There is not one collected Robert Anton Wilson archives in any library, any special collections library in America or the world right now. Is there a day where that happens? Does the family sit on unpublished manuscripts and letter? Like, what is the hope for there to be a, a Robert Anton Wilson collection somewhere? Is it possible? This is me educated guessing here, but I think it's possible. I think it's like what you said. I think it would involve the family and the raw trust who is headed up by uh, one of Wilson and Arlen's daughters. What I've noticed is when they receive a manuscript, because within the, the course of me writing this book, there have been two Wilson manuscripts, quote unquote, long lost manuscripts that have been discovered in the different special collection libraries. The first one being this book called The Starseed Transmissions. I think that's the name of it. That was actually found, I think, by Christian Greer and given to Adam Golrightly, another writer of very interesting and fun topics. Then it made its way to the Raw Trust, and they eventually put that book out on their publishing house. And then this just happened with another one, a book they're calling The Lion of Light, 
I actually accessed this book. It was at Harvard Special Collections Library called the Haughton Library. I believe I paid per page for the photocopy and I read it on my YouTube page if anyone wants to check it out because it's a really awesome book about Crawley. Like it's Wilson's most compact explanation of Crawley's life, but more importantly, what he calls Crawley's curriculum, which is if you're interested in thelemic magic, that's the step-by-step right there. And Bob has given it to you in a way less confusing way than Crawley like mm. will present it. And so briefly, I'm not sure, honestly, to answer your question in terms of when and if a physical Wilson archive will manifest in a college somewhere. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I, I think I have the most letters correspondence in terms of different people that he wrote to from my going out and research than anyone right now. And I'm holding on to it till the book is, until the book is out, you know? And then there was the other archive, if you will, that was kept on Wilson and Arlen, which was the Chicago Red Squad files. Mm. That's like a type of FBI file. And that was like the Chicago Police Department starting their commie squad was basically their anti-radical task force. And they surveilled thousands of people in Chicago during the 60s into the 70s until a lawsuit shut them down, if you will. And it was in that lawsuit that, that forced the Chicago Police Department to present these files and put them in the Chicago History Museum, which one can access. And I was able to access those files. And it took a lot of work to to access those files. Hopefully, at one point in the near future, some sort of centralized Wilson archive will manifest because there's a lot there. I want to dig into some specific topics of interest of his and get some of your thoughts on it. But just to wrap up on, on this point, if you had to make an educated guess, are there still unpublished manuscripts that you think will see the light of day? I think that there may still be possibly two more unpublished manuscripts that Wilson wrote about, possibly three. One was something he was calling Death Shall Have No Dominion. And he wrote about that a little bit in Cosmic Trigger Volume 1. And it was his book that was about the anti-aging space migration part of the Tim Leary smile equation. Mm-hmm. You know, that was huge in the 70s, space migration, intelligence, increase in life extension. And as you know, and many Bob people know that Wilson was very much into the science of delayed aging or anti-aging and stuff like that. He might have had a book in that. He, I, So he wrote in letters to his friends that he was sending out all these different manuscripts. And that was one of them. Another one was actually a book that he was calling Lion of Light. As I said, there's a book out right now called Lion of Light, but that book just has that title. That book was actually in this essay that Bob wrote, which is now a book called Lion of Light, but the essay is actually called Do What Thou Wilt. What I'm getting at is there may actually be, Wilson wrote a number of letters to friends and also letters to the magazine called Green Egg, which was mm-hmm. a, a pagan magazine in the 70s. So he, he wrote in those letters column that he was working on a, a full-length book called Lion of Light. So 
That's not the book that's out right now. This is some other book, which was also about Crawley, but it was like a, a deeper exploration of Crawley intersecting with the notion of paganism and this idea called the witch cult hypothesis, which was uh, a, a notion that the witch trials in Europe hundreds of years ago, as we now tend to believe, because this is what the scholars are saying, is this was a manifestation of mass hysteria where people called these other people witches and they burnt them at the stake because they were crazy and they projected their paranoid delusions onto women who were practicing folk medicine. But the witch cult hypothesis is a notion that this is actually a witch cult that predates Christianity and that has existed throughout Europe going back thousands of years, right? Bob was exploring that notion in the 70s. It was also a part of that pagan worldview at the time, I suppose, right? Yeah. But I guess it went out of favor, right? Obviously in scholastic circles and not quite sure what happened. Bob never really writes about that again. But at that time in 1974, he was super into this idea that he could trace Crawley to paganism, to this witch cult, Dianus. This is the notion that the way that they celebrate or whatever, I think it would just be women, mostly women at the time, they would sit around in a circle and then a guy would come in wearing horns. They would all copulate in the name of the religion. And this is what made everyone... Christians weren't down with that. They weren't down with that. <laughs> like, this is like early rock and roll. And so, um, long story short, that book, The Lion of Light, has not manifested yet. So maybe that's still there. And I, I don't want to confuse listeners because, as I said, there's a book out right now called Lion of Light, and it's great. But at, that's not the Lion of Light that Bob was talking about in the mid-70s. And I, I talk about all this in, in my book, so kind of give it a little more context and stuff, yeah. That's great. Um, that seems like a really fascinating line of inquiry, though. Like, the, there's some strand there, and it, it seems exactly like the kind of thing he would play with. In, in such a fun way. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you're enjoying this conversation, please visit the show notes in your podcast app. They're packed with links to resources that will take you deeper into the people and topics explored here. Thanks. And now back to Spotlight On. I'm not sure how to frame this question, so forgive me in advance for being inarticulate. But there's this idea that a lot of the, I'll say 20th century, but it may go back a bit earlier, but a lot of the 20th century sort of philosophers and writers like Bob, it's interesting to ponder how much in their speculative writing they've actually infected the historical record and corrupted the historical record. Things like the Priory of Sion becoming sort of quasi-fact. And as time goes on, those things become codified in official history. Or even, the, you know, yeah, this, to stay with that one in particular, the, the whole notion of the bloodline of Christ and these stories that start to try to become rooted in antiquity and with good storytellers rooting them in antiquity, they become fact. 
it's an interesting notion that there's this strand of like hucksterism on one extreme, pranksterism on the other, and somewhere in between attempt at scholarship and research. Some of this stuff may actually be true. That's like the milieu that Bob is in for me. He's of that genre, if you will. And I, I wonder what, how that notion lands for you and, and what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And in terms of analyzing Wilson with a skeptical eye, a critical tone in the appropriate way, because if anyone's attempting to say anything worthy to be carried on through the ages, it has to be confronted with a, a scrupulous eye, right? But it is funny, like, because Wilson promoted this notion of himself. This raw scholar named Michael Johnson said that Wilson was for stoned out intellectuals, mm-hmm. right? That's like one of his main markets, if you will. He is obviously one having a lot of fun, making himself laugh a lot. I think that he, for instance, with the Discordians, where maybe it all started with Bob, like going super satirical. And it was also part of a wave of the 60s too, this sort of pranksterism. Bob was friends with and wrote for Paul Krasner, the kind of countercultural comedy legend. Bob wrote for The Realist, which Krasner started in uh, the late 50s. And Krasner, of course, one of his more memorable (laughs) articles or whatever is about how Lyndon Baines Johnson fucked the skull of of JFK after JFK was assassinated, which is that imagery is gruesome. But like, as you said earlier, this notion of like things, it's one cannot decontextualize Wilson. And this is the seduction of today with the communication technologies that we have. Everything promotes a historical decontextualization. And so many things, when they're presented in an isolated way, can appear very bad or dangerous or or what have you, right? But this is life, man. This is what I learned through reading Wilson and educating myself and going out into the world is you cannot judge a book by its cover. You can't judge a person based on one statement or tweet that they've made. If you really want to know somebody, you actually have to come in contact with them and communicate with them and et cetera, et cetera. We're in a time of like such like knee-jerk reactionism, reactionaries. We are we all do that, like this initial reaction, right? We're in an interesting moment of that, shall we say. Wilson and the Discordians, it was very mischievous, right? What they specifically did with this thing called Operation Mindfuck, that the specific notion of it was Bob's friend and Discordian co-founder, Kerry Thornley, was called in as a witness to Jim Garrison's investigation of the assassination of JFK. And at first, Thornley was a friendly witness, but then one of Garrison's, so the story goes, research aides or investigative aides was following this idea of the Illuminati and then found the Discordians and somehow was thinking that the Discordians were, could be on some shit, let's just say, right? And so Thornley was hurt by that. And he was like, yo, let's go get them, right? We're going to start Operation Mindfuck. And Bob was all with it. The main thing with that was they sent letters under pseudonyms, different titles of people saying they were representing different groups or whatnot to this person named Harold Chapman, who was one of Garrison's investigative aides. 
just saying, you're right, the Illuminati is real and the Discordians are the Illuminati and they're down with everything that's horrible, like just as a way to, to mess with this guy. And they got a kick out of it. It's a very hippie, yippie sort of thing. They got a kick out of this other guy becoming increasingly paranoid and they laughed at him for that, right? They were all young, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of like what younger minds can do, right? At times, like just fuck you, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to mess with you, right? I don't know if Wilson in later years would thought that that wasn't the best approach. It, it just seemed like he walked away from that saying, if you don't know that I'm kidding, well, then you deserve to get fucked with. He's really staunchly rooted in a satirical approach to his whole life and philosophy. And I, we're in an interesting age again right now. 2016 was an interesting moment of all these people claiming that they were satirists when they were really just racists and just saying all these sort of things. And it's like, that's not funny. What do you know about Jonathan Swift? Well, Wilson, he did the knowledge on satire. Like he knew that Burroughs was a satirist. He studied Jonathan Swift like through and through. When it came to the Priory of Scion, there's a really good talk that he gave called The Eye in the Triangle. And you can, you can watch it on YouTube and you see what Wilson was doing with the Priory of Scion. And he's pretty much constantly saying, I'm not drawing any conclusions here. And of course, it's a line that people later have said. But what he does is he presents these different arguments from these different books that are talking about the Priory of Scion. And then he stresses the fact that you have to utilize your own critical thinking skills here to make sense of this yourself. But in the meantime, I'm going to take the Priory of Scion story, Mythos, which he got initially from that book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which came out in 1982. Bob ate it up because it was about a secret society, right? At the same time, 82, 84, he also got into this whole actual thing that happened called the Propaganda Due Conspiracy, which was an actual conspiracy of actual fascists and Nazis who were seeking to take over the government of Italy and then other South American countries. And they were high-level Freemasons that were clandestinely picked to then enter the Propaganda Due group. Bob really went into that as well. And he took these two things, the Propaganda Due and Priory of Scion, and he smashed them together into, into, a, into a historical timeline. And he put it in his, one of his best books that he's ever written, The Widow's Son. And he basically created two dual plot lines in that one book through the use of footnotes. The regular narrative was about the continuing story of the protagonist Sigismundo Celine and his adventures and coming-of-age story in the late 1700s in a time of great revolution. What a great story that is. But then at the same time, through footnotes, Bob is telling a whole other tale, utilizing the themes found within the Priory of Scion and then the facts found within the Propaganda Due conspiracy. And, and that was pretty much Wilson. But that was a fiction. I think he was really clear. Like, I don't think Wilson was ever out there trying to support the idea of the Priory of Scion as absolutely true. I think that he used it mostly for plotline. And I would just direct people, if they want to know about Bob's use of the Priory of Scion, just to read The Widow's Son. He even confused 
his editors at Blue Jay Press at the time, like they were constantly checking his stuff in the book and they're like, is this true? But again, I think that was one of Wilson's main points. I mean, Illuminatus was that as well. He was there to spark an interest in history to begin with, to get you interested to read more about the late 1700s in France and America and to check out all these different sources and do your own research. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Because <laughs> in the non-Q nonsense. <laughs> yeah, we, we live with the ramifications of that in a big way. And it's something I wrestle with in my admiration for him, which is one of the byproducts is, and I think he knew this as well, that there's a lot of stupidity out there. I think about the Frank Zappa quote that hydrogen is not the most common element in the universe. Stupidity is. Nice. And the repercussion of that, though, is everybody's their own scholar. Everybody can say, well, maybe, and it gives credence to way too much bullshit. I appreciate the side of Bob that says we are a collection of individuals and the individual has the ultimate responsibility, but it's not playing out very well for us. But you mentioned Carrie Thornley, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about, so I, I wanted to come back and ask you about a couple of the areas of interest that, that Bob's had over the years. And you can't talk about him without talking about JFK, right? It's interesting to watch, I'll put in air quotes, Bob and his contemporaries. I would include people like Ivan Stang and I guess Bob Shea, maybe Leary, certainly lots of other people who thought about JFK and the assassination. To look at how their kind of thinking and comments have changed over the years. And it seems there's a general sense of, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very interesting. But you kind of want to stay away from it because it's a quick path to lunacy. It's so strange. Mm -hmm. It has such an Ouroboros quality. It's the ultimate, yeah, maybe. It's such a bizarre tale. And obviously, you and I could spend hours talking about the layers there. But I think at a, the highest level way I would articulate it is that there's the story of what happened. And then there's every person involved in that story, where if you scratch the surface of them and their story and their involvement in the story, it quickly unravels into something that it's almost scary. It's this spectrum of the most benign thing would be to say it's bizarre. But if you really dig into it, it stops making sense very quickly, like how these things could be unrelated. There was like this culture jamming aspect to it through the late 60s into the 70s, maybe the early 80s. And then when we get to the late 80s and the 90s, when the conspiratorial worldview was magnified by media and the world I came up in of the independent presses and the right wing started to adopt a lot of this stuff. JFK as a topic, the assassination as a topic. How does it fit into your take on Bob's story? That's a really great topic to get into in relation to Wilson, because you're right. That is one association with Wilson's work, probably mostly because of Illuminatus trilogy, because in that novel, him and Shay, they present the JFK assassination in five episodes throughout the 800 pages. And like anyone unfamiliar with the book, the book skips around like someone flipping through a TV channel, which is interesting and disorienting. And Wilson, this is a good, this touches on your previous question and observation about Wilson's uh, antics influencing the way people think how history went. 
right? He and Shay presented a, a theory within Illuminatus about what really happened to JFK, who was behind the assassination. The first episode, it's just Lee Harvey Oswald up there on the Texas Book Depository, sixth floor, ready to bust shots. But then a shot comes from the grassy knoll, right? Three shots or whatever come from the grassy knoll. And before Oswald could get a shot off, he's like, was that? And then the story progresses. And the next episode that comes up, John Dillinger, the famous American bank robber who actually was not killed in Chicago's Biograph Theater, he's still alive. And he was ready to assassinate whoever. And I could be maybe mashing up some of these things, like, because then they just keep going with the absurdity. Because then the next episode, there's another assassin there who was not a historical figure. He's just the character in the book. And then he notices some other stuff. And then eventually it gets to the fifth episode where none of those people, it wasn't the CIA, it wasn't Cuban rebels, it wasn't the mafia, it wasn't Soviets, it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. It was this guy who felt jilted that JFK started investing in space age technologies because he had taken his money out just years before from investing in space age technology and he went broke and his whole life fell apart. So he really is a lone gunman who killed the president, right? Illuminatus trilogy is is placed in science fiction, right? It's a fiction. It's a book. It's a joke. It's but it's also within that joke. This is this is Wilson's whole approach, I think, is that within this the sort of joking, there might be some truth. It's also contextualized within his time and place. As you said, like it when things started shifting, when the conspiracy theories hit the media, things seemed to take on a different flavor that that wasn't quite as maybe done in good fun as like a fun game, paranoid game that you play when you're smoking weed with your friends of what if Robin Ramsey, the British investigative journalist, wrote a great book about conspiracy theories. And he observed, as do many other scholars, that for a long time, the Kennedy assassination and any theories about the bad actions of the CIA were mostly relegated to the left the left in the political spectrum and the left being mostly reflected in countercultural stuff and growing up like Bowie and Zappa. And you're not really going to read William F. Buckley after you listen to a, a Bowie album. You might read, well, whatever, you know what I'm getting at, right? Yep. There has been the evolution and it coincides, I think, with our communication technologies. Wilson was mostly writing these things now it's going to be 50 years ago, 40 to 50 years ago, when he really got into the writing about conspiracy stuff. He also anticipated the change. He said that as society continues to change and morph with the increase in communication technologies, people are going to find more recondite conspiracy theories to attach themselves to, meaning they're going to find weirder, more obscure things to get all crazy about. For people who wonder if what Wilson was saying, was it ultimately productive or destructive? Does it help people think more, just lead them to more stupid shit? This was a major part of his work was to steer people away from being stupid. I mean, that's what intelligence increase was about, right? Did he accomplish that? I'm not sure. But uh, personally, from reading, studying his stuff, more people know about Illuminatus trilogy, but maybe they haven't read Everything is Under Control, which he published in 1998, which he pretty clearly breaks down and states how conspiracy theories tend to 
take over people's minds like viruses, if you will. And what's one reason why they do that? Because they're stuck looking for a soul or a group of core essential bad guys. When really, when you look at things through a Wilson perspective, where he's seeking to encourage people to boost their critical thinking skills, we see how complex it really is. But he's playing with people's paranoia in his fiction as a plot device, just like Philip K. Dick used alien invasion as a plot device. He wants people to start thinking like this. Now, 50 years later, say post-QAnon even, like QAnon was the ultimate explosion of conspiranoid madness. I still think reading Robert Anton Wilson is an antidote to that and not a gateway drug to that. But one really has to read, say, well, one could read Illuminatus Trilogy and pick that up. But it's funny because there are some people who they believe, either they believed everything in Illuminatus Trilogy, which is pretty wild to me, like how you could do that, or they think that Wilson and Shea, they actually took sincere seekers to find out the truth about the JFK assassination. They were actually misinformation agents taking people away from caring to even look at who really was behind the JFK assassination. I think what Wilson provides really are like a sort of context, really, when you dive into all this weird, crazy stuff, like looking at the JFK assassination. Like, as you said, like when you scratch someone's name, you see all this weird labyrinthian connections, what he calls the spaghetti theory. That's the way the world is, though, right? The further you go up the chain, the less people there are. Flannery O'Connor wrote a short story, Everything That Rises Must Converge, right? Mm. So there are Bilderberg meetings, right? <laughs> like where the press is not allowed to go. Why? And these people are not janitors at your local YMCA who are taking over these hotels and discussing whatever they're discussing. They're not talking about their golf game. They are discussing policies. The average everyday janitor is not allowed inside unless they're working. Wilson was looking at, as a philosopher then, I, I think people who read him a lot tend to think of him as, even though he was not generally considered a philosopher by many people, right? But he is seeking to take this wide view of the idea of the open exchange of information and communication signals. That's one of his main points, that communication can only exist between equals. So if we flip that, equality can only exist if there's truly free communication. We live in this world of different hierarchies of communication. Who's allowed to know what and who's allowed to say what? I, I just mean that within structures of where secrecy exists, because there are many structures where one must be holding secrets. Bob is looking at that, and no one has come up with an answer for that yet, really. This is something we're all trying to figure out all the time, but he's cognizant of that McClellan idea that the medium is the message, right? So as you mentioned, like the early 90s was this awesome consilience of the zine culture, of the, the beginning enthusiasm for this thing called the internet, the World Wide Web that's coming that will one day make everything better. Bob definitely got into the techno-utopianism of that. But I don't think, with all of his work, I think that you can find equally his rigorous sort of dedication to being as scrupulous and skeptical as possible, while at the same time, there's plenty to find 
to lead you to the madhouse, if you will, within his stuff. So ultimately, I hope my book helps contextualize some of that. And there are many people who might really just know Bob through Illuminatus trilogy and and that's it, or they've read Cosmic Trigger or whatnot. Like I hope to provide like a very wide discussion of all of his work. What does that mean through the context of just presenting his life? Because I'm saying all this, but I also agree with you and I also disagree at the same time. In true Bob fashion. <laughs> One of the other things that's interesting to me, and this has to do mainly with my on-ramp to Bob, but it's, again, it's stuck with me for the better part of 30 some odd years. Cosmic Trigger was the first book I read of his. I read it every couple of years. Like a lot of people, I give it to anybody who I think would be open to its vibe. (laughs) By and large, nobody reads it and shrugs. Everybody who reads it is pretty on a spectrum of, they're either moved or they're intrigued. Nobody just says, oh, I don't know. Interesting book, I guess. One of the things that he does pretty early in the book that, at the, again, at the time, early 20s, a seeker, not having a massive intellectual underpinning to the things I was exploring, incredibly open. I was very interested in the, in the UFO topic, specifically the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I was at the same time, I was getting really deeply into the work of Jacques Vallée, who mm. completely changed my understanding of the phenomenon and how to think about it and the questions to ask. As I'm reading those books, Valet's books, I read Cosmic Trigger and the the two strands that came together for me are like the folkloric aspect of the UFO phenomenon and Bob talking about what is a little green man, right? He's a leprechaun, he's Mr. Spock, you know, he's an icon that's been with us forever throughout history and across cultures. And Valet is saying the same thing from his scientific research point of view. But something that really blew my mind in Cosmic Trigger, and I forgot about it until a few years ago rereading it, was that their paths crossed. Bob tells a specific story. I think it's of a dinner party or something like that and a conversation he's involved with Filet. That's all a long way of me getting to, the, to this point, which is that era of, let's call it the late 60s or early 70s, till maybe the early 80s, in California in particular, where so much of what we think of as our modern, really our modern world has come from, not Mm -hmm. just the technology revolution, the way psychedelic culture, new age culture, freak culture, technology culture, the infusion of government research money into all the universities, like all these things came together where all kinds of thinkers were out there at the same time doing work that's impacted our current world but a lot of them knew each other and were approaching the same problems from different disciplines. You know, I think about Jacques Vallée working on remote viewing. Like what is, you know, he's a computer scientist being hired by the government to do a remote viewing study. Also, what we think of is like very California. I, I would love to hear any thoughts you have in conducting your research and writing about Bob, about that particular era and that stew, but also... Did that does that come up in your book at all that era? It does. Yes, Lawrence, it definitely does. And I I ended up doing a lot of research around that topic and some of it I actually had to cut. Yeah, because there's so much there, right? It's like a um, whole another social history almost. Definitely. Of which I was seeking to decipher how much of a part Wilson played in that 
You mentioned Valet and the uh, research into remote viewing, but you also mentioned just before how Bob and Jacques Valet, they met, uh, it was at a Crawley Mass party. Off the top of my head, it might have been 1974. It could have been. And, and Crawley Mass is a celebration of, the, I think it's Aleister Crawley's birthday, right? And so it was October 12th, which is also, I think, Columbus Day, right? But I know it's Crawley Mass, right? Bob was living in Berkeley, and he was in a, an apartment house. It was just uh, a few people, like a few apartments, and they were all into like the paganistic sort of movement at the time, which was huge out there in 1974. And so they're like, hey, let's throw a Crawley Mass party. Someone knew Jacques Vallée, and uh, it could have been Jeffrey Mishloff, the broadcaster. Or I, would, I would call him the, the interviewer and writer, the only person to graduate, I think, UC Berkeley with a, a degree in parapsychology. Just a, a great interviewer, Jeffrey Mishloff, and a great resource for this book, for this time period. Wilson and Vallée met at Wilson's party. Wilson writes in Cosmic Trigger how... He hurried Valet to, to another room so he could pick his brain. And Wilson's friends, Grady McMurtry and his wife, Phyllis McMurtry, and then later Phyllis Seckler, they were both pivotal individuals in the revitalization of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which was, wasn't Crowley's invention, but Crowley was the head of it for a while. The OTO owes McMurtry and Seckler a huge debt of gratitude for the work that they did in resurrecting, getting the OTO really together again in America. Bob hung out with some heavyweights, right? When he wanted to find out about a subject, he went right to the source. When he wanted to find out about Crowley, he went right to Grady McMurtry, right to Israel Regardi. And Israel Regardi was the British occultist, chiropractor, psychotherapist, who wrote a book about Crowley called The Eye and the Triangle. It was a biography of Crowley that Alan Watts recommended Wilson to read. How was Bob friends with freaking Alan Watts? He yeah. probably read a book of Alan Watts's and hit him up directly. So that's a great takeaway from this book in a way is if you want to know about something, go right to the source. Find out who the source is and go right to the source, right? He and McMurtry and Seckler and a couple other people were in a back room talking with Valet about what's going on, right, with Bob's life at the time. He thinks he's tuning into, as you call it, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, where there, there are maybe physical beings in the Sirius galaxy telepathically giving him messages or whatever. And he has a great conversation about all this there. And Valet actually has such an impact on his thinking that he starts reconsidering his initial interpretation of what's going on. And Valet's sort of take was like what you said, right? That it's uncertain exactly what it is, but we know that it could have been here much longer than the 1948 flap of UFOs, that these presences have manifested in these different forms. Maybe the Blessed Virgin Mary or L Little Green Man or angels for now, they could have been with us the whole time. You know, there there have been people seeing these weird things. If you look at it through this valet lens for an awful long time, Bob took to that. I, I think because that way of thinking goes non-dual, yeah. you know, escapes the notion of it's either this or that. And Wilson was like an ardent believer in what he called, you know, non-Aristotelian logic, 
which he picked up from the writer Alfred Korzybski, who started this whole thing called general semantics, which was, it was linguistic relativity, basically, the anthropological approach that the way the language we use really influences the way we think about the world, right? And the way we even see the world. Wilson was really heavy into not locking things down to an either or categorization because when you analyze nature, nature doesn't work like that. Nature doesn't work in complete binaries. There are so many things that when you really look at it are on the spectrum of flux. So Wilson is a process philosopher in that regard, or at least he's presenting this process philosophy. Today's world is much more open to this notion of flux and process, and we're all just moving on this flow through existence. But one thing that Wilson brings to the table is that seeking to apply still a rigorous eye to this flux, because it's very easy for people, lazy thinkers, to be like, hey, man, it's all flux. Don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. You know, And it's usually the people who have you sleeping on the floor that are telling you not to worry about it, but they're <laughs> sleeping in a bed. You know what I mean? Like, so Wilson spent enough time sleeping on the floor to understand that like, we need to keep applying as much intellectual rigor as we can to this flux that we truly exist in. Because when you can't rely on you know, an either or category, what exists and what exists is a multi-valued logic that takes a lot more work to, to look at the world through that lens. I think this is what he thought Valet was presenting in his interesting take on these appearances of UFOs or, or whatnot. I'm, I'm curious, did you find any evidence or indication that he and Valet maintained communication or correspondence over the years? I was unable to find any letters, but Valet's still alive. Sadly, I tried a few different avenues to contact Valet about Wilson, but I was unable to hear back from him. I don't know. And I've never really found anything either about Valet speaking about Bob Wilson. I don't know if Valet ever read any of Wilson's stuff. I do remember that Mishloff commenting that, and Jeffrey Mishloff was friends with a lot of scientists in Berkeley at the time. And basically he said that even though retrospectively, like Wilson is writing a lot of amazing stuff. At the time, scientists weren't really reading Bob because he wasn't seen as a scientist in that regard. You know, he was more just like a, a satirical novelist. That's something for the next Wilson researcher to find. Yeah. And that's one thing that's great about this is that my book is the first. There's going to be more. I hope my book is heavy enough to, to keep people chewing for a while. To close off the Valet conversation, I think a biographical treatment of him would be fascinating. He's such an interesting character, and he vacillates between being incredibly explicit with the things he's willing to say and incredibly cagey with the things he won't say about what he either knows or believes. He's clearly non-dualistic in his thinking. I, I think that his impact is going to take a while, probably till after he passes and he allows the release of certain things, but he's a fascinating underread and underappreciated character. And unfortunately, because most of his work has been in the UFO field, he's not been able to recouch it as a consciousness or a, he's, in, in other phenomenology. It's stuck as a UFO line of inquiry, but he's a fascinating character. To add on to what you were asking about within that scene, how these people rub shoulders 
and Valet was doing work at SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and uh, you know Russell Targ and Hal Putoff were sponsored by the CIA to do research into ESP and remote viewing. There's some really good literature out there that that does link that whole circle, and it kind of revolves around Arthur C. Young, right? Arthur C. Young finds himself at the intersection of all these kind of crazy sort of conspiracy theories, if you will. I couldn't really fit this in the book, but Arthur C. Young, he created the Bell helicopter for the military. It was used, maybe the most used helicopter in Vietnam, perhaps, right? Made all this money. And then he married this woman and they started a consciousness research institute in Philadelphia. This woman was the mother of a man that was married to this woman named Ruth Payne. It could do an hour on Ruth Payne. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So so when Wilson is writing Cosmic Trigger Volume 1, when he first meets Carrie Thornley, and he learns of Carrie Thornley's intersection with the JFK assassination investigation, Wilson notes, wow, that's really weird and interesting because our family doctor is the brother of this woman named Ruth Payne. And the guy's name was Carl Hyde Jr., and this was in Yellow Springs, Ohio in 1962. Carl Hyde Jr. was the family doctor for the Wilsons. Well, that's Ruth Hyde becomes Michael Payne's wife. And Michael Payne is the son of the woman that marries Arthur C. Young. And together they start this Consciousness Research Institute in Philadelphia. So Ruth Payne was the last person to see Lee Harvey Oswald before he assassinated JFK. She got him the job. She got him the job. Exactly. Exactly. Just, and and the famous picture of Lee Harvey Oswald holding the rifle that he supposedly killed JFK with was taken outside of Ruth and Michael Payne's garage, as you know. And so she's an interesting individual. Her husband's stepdad is Arthur C. Young, who Arthur C. Young later moves to Berkeley and was actually four blocks away from where Robert Anton Wilson was living. And Arthur C. Young it becomes a huge epicenter. His house is open to all these amazing quantum physicists and speakers and talkers, lecturers, I should say. Bob becomes friends with this particle physicist named Saul Paul Sarag, who is like such a genius. Sarag was actually Arthur C. Young's assistant at the time at the new consciousness. I'm, I'm not getting the name right of the, the Institute for Consciousness Research or something like that. In Berkeley, Sarag becomes friends with Wilson. They mail letters to each other, but they're only four blocks away from each other. Porpicuity is the term where people are within close proximity of each other. And these things are sort of weird, these weird, interesting relations that come up. But Wilson never really, he was not part of that crew, the Arthur C. Young kind of clique. But a man named Robert Temple was... Robert Temple was also later Arthur C. Young's assistant. Robert Temple wrote the book, The Serious Mysteries, which Wilson, of course, read and got somewhat into and wrote about in Cosmic Trigger Volume 1. It was Arthur C. Young who told Robert Temple about the original anthropological study of the, the Dogon tribe in Mali about Sirius. So here you have Arthur C. Young, man. He's a promoter of this notion of the idea of Sirius, right? The story goes that he even maybe heard about it. I don't remember the fellow's name, but he was a, an artist and an archivist and the Smithsonian bought his, his record. Oh, Harry Smith. Harry Smith. Harry Smith. 
So according to Saul Paul Sarag, the serious mystery starts with Harry Smith. And Harry Smith told Arthur Young, but it's also the study from these French and Belgian anthropologists of the Dogon tribe in, in Mali. Point being, Sirius was a meme, was a serious meme in the early 70s. There's actually a conspiracy book. It could be called the Stargate Conspiracy. I hope that's what it's called. And they attempt to basically present this sort of theory in the book. And it, it leans towards conspiracy theory because for the writers, this was all a big movement. And, and all these writers got taken in by it and thinkers and this idea of Sirius. And the point is to get people believing in a UFO religion as, as a form of control, to control the way people think even about UFOs. And that, that was a wide, broad swath. Robert Anton Wilson didn't say that. That was in the book, The Stargate Conspiracy. But they relate then all these people together. I mean, Vallée flirts with that. That's a big part of his thinking over the years is that it appears to his observation to be part of some kind of a control mechanism. And, and what the purpose of it is, he doesn't speculate too openly publicly, but that's how he views the UFO phenomenon is that it behaves in ways that are meant to spark belief in air quotes. And that belief is a, is manipulatable. Yeah. That's a very interesting line of thought. It, it really is. And it's a good approach to have towards, especially today, all this talk of UFOs and stuff like that. Rather than ask you to go down that rabbit hole with me, tell me yeah. a little bit about when will we be holding copies of the book that we can order online? And who's putting it out? It's being published by uh, Strange Attractor Press based in London. They are a great publisher of really fun and interesting sort of uh, occult titles and books on music and stuff like that. They also published Eric Davis's book a few years ago. Uh, it was called High Weirdness. Oh, it's a great uh, book. It it's a lot of this stuff about the California sort of culture. For sure. Yeah, he presents it very well. So they published that book. The Wilson biography fits in very well. I like their whole approach. I, I think they, they have a cool vibe to them. And they clearly know how to get the books covered, which is exciting. Yeah, that book got a lot of press when it came out. Oh, that's nice. Yes, I'm yeah. looking, I hope <laughs> that's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they have a deal with MIT Press too. So it's technically it's Strange Attractor slash MIT Press or wow. the publishers. So- that's nice to have that because I also noticed in the last few years, there's a lot of, well, Eric Davis being a, a good example, like of discussion of Wilson's work within an academic context. So that's only increased. And I hope the book adds to that. It's going to be published in February next year, 2024, but uh, pre-orders are available. Uh, one can pre-order them now. I, I don't know why the MIT press doesn't get you there right away, but I know some people might not be down with this, but the Amazon link could get you to pre-order the book now. But one can see it on like penguinbooks.com. Uh, well, we'll make sure we link to it from the show notes for sure. That's great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you, man. Yeah, pre-orders are definitely available right now. Excellent, excellent. I'm so looking forward to reading it. I wasn't sure I should even hope that someone would attempt to tackle this. So thank you for doing so. My pleasure, man. It was a trip. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Thank you for making time. This whole thing could be the topic of its own podcast. It's Bob's, Bob's the gift that keeps giving. For sure, man. Thank you so much, Gabriel Kennedy. And thank you for writing Chapel Perilous. 
As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by QBurn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.